AHLA is pleased to present this special series highlighting the top 10 health law issues of 2023, where we bring together thought leaders from across the health law field to discuss the major trends and developments of the year. Support for AHLA in this series is provided by PYA, which helps clients find value in the complex challenges related to mergers and acquisitions, clinical integrations, regulatory compliance, business valuations, and fair market value assessments, and tax and assurance. For more information, visit PYAPC.com. Good afternoon. This is Tynan Kugler. I'm a principal with PYA. And I am here with Rebecca Schaefer of KNL Gates to talk about research-related developments to watch. We are number 10 in AHLA's top 10 issues in health law for 2023. And I am delighted to be here to talk through a lot of exciting developments with Rebecca. So before we get into it, I'm gonna turn it over to you, Rebecca, and just have you introduce yourself as well. Thanks, Tynan, and it's great to be here with you. And thanks to the listeners. Um, yes, it's it's fun to be bringing up the rear in uh, the 10th of the Tenth part of the series. Um, so yes, as mentioned, I'm Rebecca Schaefer, um, a partner in the healthcare and FDA practice group at Cannell Gates, and I'm a healthcare and research regulatory and transactional lawyer. Um, I'll also just mention before that I was formerly in house at an academic medical center and had responsibility for, among other things, um, the clinical research program and supporting research administrative offices. So that gave me a, a bit of a front row seat to some of the operational issues that, that research institutions face and will face in implementing some of the changes we're gonna talk about today. Yes, and and I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned for our listeners and also grateful to AHLA for helping put this on, but what, why don't we just dive right in and, and talk about uh, some of the items that you wrote about. The, the nice thing I think about your, your article was you hit on five or six sort of key topics. And one of the things that's, that's been exciting about sort of where we've landed in this podcast series is there even been some, I would say some focus on some, some additional developments, uh, refocus on some things that you had written about. So look forward to hearing about those. Um, you know, when I think about research and we, we talk about changes in research, we know that sort of year over year, there are um, hot topics that come up and there are developments um, that come through a variety of different ways, whether it's policies, rules, statutes. And I'm, I'm curious to know when, when you sort of think, look big picture, you know, what kind of policy initiatives sort of come to mind when you think about 2023 overall? Sure. So, yeah, and you're right that there have been some um, developments even since the article went to press at the end of 2022 and glad to highlight those here. And I think, you know, anything in this space uh, deals with a little bit of alphabet soup. So one of those um, uh, new updates would be Fedora and we'll, we'll come to that in a moment. But the, um, you know, FDA um, omnibus legislation, mm -hmm. but really uh, starting first on the regulatory front. And this was covered in the article. Um, can give you know a little bit of a what to watch for add-on here. But um, the FDA's notice of proposed rulemaking that was put forward in September of 2022 um, is one example of um, some regulatory changes afoot um, and FDA's intent to 
streamline and clarify, um, including as most required under the 21st Century Cures Act, certain requirements for clinical investigations and for cooperative research. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as listeners are likely aware, there's two primary regulatory frameworks governing human subjects protections in research. There's the federal policy for the protection of human subjects, which is colloquially known as the common rule. And that obviously applies to federally funded human subjects research. And then the FDA rules under 21 CFR parts 50 and 56, which apply to clinical investigations regulated by FDA. And the challenge is that if you've got federal funding for an FDA regulated study, both sets of rules apply. Mm -hmm. So folks were eagerly awaiting um, the, the harmonization um, proposal from FDA, which, which does um, take a number of steps towards um, reconciling their requirements with those of the common rule. For example, um, adding elements to inform consent um, and, and interestingly, um, specifically around, um, or at least what I took note of was um, informed consent requirements pertaining to subject samples um, and the impact that's got potential to have on um, use of samples for whole genome sequencing, which is you know an activity gaining interest and speed given the potential for genomic data to, to drive drug target discovery. Um, so, so that's just, you know, one aspect where um, there were informed consent and IRB requirement updates through the harmonization prong of these, this two-part notice of proposed rulemaking. What I'll call out, though, is there were a couple of things FDA declined to, to propose in, in the nature of harmonization. Um, one was it, it was not proposing to lessen requirements for IRB review of in vitro diagnostic studies using mm -hmm. leftover de-identified specimens. Um, where and that oversight is retained at least in the FDA proposed rule, whereas the common rule considers those activities as non-human subjects research. And the other call out from that, and then I'll just briefly mention the cooperative um, research component of the proposed rule, um, is FDA did not propose to adopt broad consent, um, and that probably reflects the reality that many research institutions have not utilized broad consent flexibilities under the revised common rule. And that just relates to administrative difficulties created mm -hmm. by needing to track subjects who decline and ensure they're never included in studies for which um, there's a waiver of informed consent. So that, that's on the harmonization side. And then on the um, single IRB review side, which was the companion notice of proposed rulemaking from FDA at the end of last year, mm -hmm. would require um, a single IRB for all US sites participating in FDA regulated cooperative research. But it does have a number of exceptions for IND exempt studies, non-significant risk device studies, and IDE exempt stu device studies. So just to wrap up on this topic, um, you know, a number of uh, research institutions and other organizations, including the AAMC, have commented. And I think we can anticipate the final rules to have clarifications based on those public comments when they're released. Um, timing TBD. Um, so... <laughs> You know, yeah, that was going to that was going to yeah, sort of be my next question is, yeah. you know, everybody, everybody always wants to know um, when is this going to occur? Could, if you had a crystal ball, could you say, here's what here's what we're thinking? A little bit of a loaded question, I know, for you. So would be interested to know if do you think that's something we're going to see in, in 2023 or should we should we uh, add this to uh, top 24 <laughs> issues? <laughs> Revisit this time next year. Right. Yeah, so <laughs> 
I think, you know, FDA missed the notice of proposed rulemaking deadline required under the Cures Act by about three years. Um, and, and also just at the lengthy process to arrive at the revised common rule in 2017 is instructed. It, it may be some time before we see the FDA final rules on this. Um, but but what I'll be watching for, I mean, when when whenever they do come out, mm-hmm. is um, whether they increase or decrease the daylight between the FDA, mm-hmm. you know, parts 50 and 54 and the common rule, um, because there are some competing considerations between issues that are discrete to FDA regulated clinical investigations and the desire for harmonization. But, but when they do come out, um, you know, I think folks will experience a similar process as when the revised common rule came out. They'll, you know, take a look at their human subject ethics program, mm-hmm. standard operating procedures, their IRB mm-hmm. reliance agreements, their informed consent templates, and, you know, consider any updates that are indicated. Great. A lot to kind of look out for there. So, um, kind of continuing down that FDA path, mm-hmm. um, were there any other sort of changes to touch on as it relates to the the, the omnibus appropriations bill? Anything there? I, I, I know um, that was one maybe that wasn't touched on as much in the article, but curious to kind of hear what's going on on that front. Sure, thanks. Yeah, so um, this was signed into law after the article went to press. Um, It was uh, December 29th, 2022 is when President Biden signed the Consolidated Appropriations Act, um, which included the Food and Drug Omnibus Reform Act, or FEDORA. Um, A few places I'll just highlight that are relevant to the research community. Um, One is Section 3601 of Fedora um, that requires clinical trial sponsors to submit diversity action plans Mm -hmm. um, for certain late stage drug trials, including all phase three trials, um, as well as most device studies. But this is all in the vein of promoting clinical trial diversity. Mm -hmm. Um, And those action plans need to state goals for enrollment, rationale, and, and really an explanation of how the sponsor intends to meet those goals. Um, for what to watch for on that front, um, FDA is tasked under the law with updating guidance on diversity action plans uh, for clinical studies and also hosting public stakeholder workshops. Um, so, you know, if folks are interested, they could uh, watch the scheduling of those and participate. The the one other thing I'll um, call out from Fedora is um, the amendments to the accelerated approval framework under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Um, With these changes, FDA will be required to address, uh, among other things, post-approval study requirements for sponsors, um, marketing products approved under an accelerated pathway, Mm -hmm. and the law gives FDA enforcement authority for sponsors' failure to conduct those post-approval studies with due diligence or to timely submit reports. Um, So the the clinical trial diversity and the accelerated approval pathway are just two of Mm. a number of changes impacting clinical research in the omnibus bill. Maybe one last call out um, is the the law expanded FDA's or really clarified FDA's authority to conduct biomonitoring research inspections, um, expressly permitting inspections of facilities involved Mm. in the preparation, conduct, or analysis of clinical and non-clinical studies that are submitted to the FDA which is just a heads up um, that this, you know, its scope could reach um, an increase or result in in, an increase in the number of FDA inspections of research sites. 
Yeah, that that's you know that's a lot of you know so much of it is is um, you know news that results. It's interesting about the the um, the acceleration with with COVID and um, you know I always sort of harken back to get your house in order from the standpoint of having having everything in place if if somebody shows up at your door and making sure that you you understand that you have every every have everything. Uh, as it needs to be. So one of one of the other things that, you know, I know you and I have talked about uh, leading up to this is just all of the exciting things that are, are coming up around in particular, uh, the Cancer Moonshot Initiative, and some of the things that that were further honed in and discussed in uh, the state of the recent State of the Union address. And, you know, one of the things that was just fascinating to me in that part of in the transcript that came out after that was, you know, the fact that the goal there, there's some, you know, pretty lofty goals, but you can also sort of see that there've, there's been so much good progress in the space and the renewed focus, but you know, that the goal to, to cut cancer death rates um, in half, um, or at least by half in 25 years, it, it is one of the, the items that was, was put forth and, and perhaps this is another area you can touch on is that there were also there was also the mention of the fact that there are like 30 new federal programs, policies, um, resources, all kinds of things that are coming out around um, some of what was 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 discussed in that State of the Union. So I'd be curious to know from a research perspective and sort of from your purview what what you think we're going to see there that. That may be kind of hot off the press too from 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 when the article was published. Right. Yeah. Appreciate that. And yeah, I agree. You know, really lofty um, and laudable goals. You know, put forth in the February seventh State of the Union address, and you know, aim high. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, so um, yeah, this is a continuation mm -hmm. of a policy initiative really um, begun under um, President Obama's administration when when now President Biden was vice president. And you know, as noted, right, it's a, a mission to accelerate the fight against cancer. Mm -hmm. um, and so part of the announcement at the State of the Union was um, reigniting the initiative with renewed White House leadership. You know, I think President Biden's described it as pulling together a, a cabinet specific to this um, focus. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that's a call out and, and getting back to your question about where, you know, funding can be anticipated or how to watch for, you know, what this means in practice for specific programs mm -hmm. that, that spin out as part of the initiative. Um, the, you know, important thing to note was that the um, 2016 um appropriation or really uh, funds made available in part for this initiative under the 21st Century Cures Act were um, 1.8 billion. Um, and there's, um, you know, expiration, an expiration date of this year on, on residual funds from, mm -hmm. from that initial appropriation. And so in the State of the Union, President Biden um, urged Congress to reauthorize the National Cancer Act um, and and the White House has articulated support for you know another bipartisan effort to build and this is in particular to you where are we going to see some investment um, cancer focused clinical trial networks and I think this is you know in part consistent with some of the other clinical trial diversity um, initiatives companion and other 
veins of the administration, um, but you know, desire for clinical trial networks that reach every community, um, mm -hmm. ensuring that we've got representative populations. Um, we're reaching uh, folks in in all all areas of our our um, community to mm -hmm. holistically and and um, in a represented way be you know, striving for innovation in, in cancer therapies. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's, that would be my one call out uh, for, you know, clinical trial networks is going to be, I think, even um, an area of increased um, investment. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny that you now sort of putting sort of two and two together. I think one of the things that we've seen a lot of is on the, essentially the academic medical center side where you've got really strong clinical research infrastructures, the, the number of affiliations that are occurring and, and attempts to build relationships out in the community is probably part and parcel related to some of what you've described. So um, be interesting to see how that, how that continues. So you mentioned a, a cabinet being potentially created or created and Think there there's there are other agencies and other organizations that are also in development from a creation standpoint one of which is arpah so give us a little insight on that yeah and we just you know keep going with alphabet soup right <laughs> so arpah is the advanced research projects agency for health um and this is a, a fledgling agency presently um nestled under NIH, but its director reports directly to Secretary Becerra. Um, its, its goal is to drive transformational health research innovation and encourage um, cross-sector and large-scale study, um, primarily uh, targeting potential cures for diseases such as cancer, again, um, Alzheimer's, diabetes. Um, and really, it's meant to um, be a disruptor in some ways to traditional means of accomplishing um, research and really uh, achieving translation of discovery into um, real-world use, clinical applications. Mm -hmm. So awardees for ARPA-H um, you know, funds are meant to tackle new ways to achieve high-impact biomedical and health research. Again, that can't readily be accomplished through traditional um, research or commercial activity. The um, appropriation for um, through fiscal year 22 and, and the funds are available through September 24 um, is one billion. And just this month, I'll flag you know one one of a number of announcements um, coming out of ARPA H. But on February 10th, the agency uh, launched an effort to speed public-private partnerships um, designed to more rapidly transition biomedical discovery into the real world. And that's um, contemplated to happen through partnership intermediary agreements um, and that make transition resources, again, bringing discovery to market essentially available throughout the entire program life cycle. In other words, get, get parties planning for real world translation from the beginning. Um, and so the, the agency's announcement um, suggested that these uh, PIAs, Partnership Intermediary Agreements, would be established with nonprofit partners who have a track record of commercial sector and transition expertise. Um, and they would engage academia and industry on behalf of the agency to speed solutions to market. Um, so just for what to watch for here, uh, I think you know there are, are bills currently under consideration. 
additional funding under consideration that would further clarify and, and codify and support the role of this new agency. I think we've got time for probably one more topic. And how about if we, we leave the alphabet? We sort of did the reverse alphabet there. <laughs> yeah. um, but let, let's leave the alphabet and go to uh, numbers and um, talk finally about uh, Presidential Memo 33 and uh, the developments that, that are around that and some of what we think we can expect to see there. Sure. Yeah. Happy, happy to switch gears to the um, foreign influence space and, and then we'll bring it home. Um, so, you know, as I think this audience would be familiar, the um, presidential memo 33 is focused on securing um, federally funded research and development from a national security perspective. And there was an implementation guidance that was released in January of last year. Um, that informed um, oversight expectations and requirements for research institutions to ensure, again, national security of government-funded R&D. Um, the, the guidance, you know, wrestles with a tough balance between, and, and articulations in the presidential memo and, and you know, all around this, re recognize a tough balance between maintaining an open research culture that's really premised on collaboration and transparency, data sharing, et cetera, um, with, you know, mitigating research integrity risks that are opposed by those seeking to misappropriate R&D to the detriment of national economic security. So what this implementation guidance set forth and, and you know, jumping ahead, what to watch for is how the grant making agencies, you know, adopts their version of it through their own program requirements. Um, it, it had five areas of focus, um, notably uh, seeking to streamline or standardize disclosure requirements for um, disclosures that would assess conflicts of interest and conflicts of commitment. This would be trying to, you know, make sure we know if investigators have um, foreign affiliations, other support uh, for their uh, NIH or other federally funded research that's, you know, coming from them internationally. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll, I'll mention here just at the end of August last year, the, the National Science and Technology Council Subcommittee on Research Security, which I know is a mouthful, but that's the, <laughs> the council that's spearheading this, um, announced draft standardization data fields and instructions for these types of disclosures, and they invited public comment, which closed at the end of October. So I think that, you know, we can expect more um, development and progress on that front. Um, I'll just briefly mention some of the other elements of the implementation guidance and then what I think are sort of the takeaways or what to watch. But there's, um, you know, treatment of uh, a, a desire to universally adopt and harmonize um, the use of researcher digital persistent identifiers. Mm -hmm. And that's to aid in sharing and reporting um, through digital research administrative systems. On this front, this is a practical matter, um, NIH already requires principal investigators to be registered with ORCID. Um, and at the end of uh, just this past month, January of 23, it looked like NSF was moving in that direction as well. Um, I think most notably from the implementation guidance was the um, inclusion of a section on consequences for violation of disclosure requirements. And this really, um, you know, inclusion of this section may signal a shift in enforcement priorities um, from, you know, what is historically focused on 
individual investigators and whether they've underreported their their foreign affiliations, their other support, um, and really to more of a focus on scrutinizing institutional controls. But I'll, while I say that, I, I know the factors cited is relevant to you know assessing institutional liability for noncompliance. We're still you know set a pretty high bar. For example, whether the organization failed to make its research community aware of disclosure requirements. Period. Um, or whether it knew if it knew of an individual's failure to disclose and didn't remedy that prior to the grant application or other, you know, certification. Um, so this and also the the implementation guidance's discussion of research security program expectations are prompting institutions to take steps now um, to educate leadership on the priority of investing in compliance in this space. Um, some are considering conducting updated security assessments, you know, and that could be holistic as part of, uh, for example, where these AMCs are embedded in healthcare providers, you know, routine um, assessments you're doing for HIPAA purposes anyway. Um, right. And also preparing for training their research communities and particularly their investigators on the um, disclosure requirements. Um, so those are, you know, again, just some some of the specifics, but really what to watch for and institutions can tailor this based on the, um, you know, predominance of their federally funded portfolio, whether it's NIH, NSF, DOD, you name it, um, figure out and be on the lookout for um, how the how these requirements are translated into those specific grant making agencies program um, guidance. Yeah, and I, I, I think to me that's the, of, of, of all of the things that you've talked about, you know, that's from an institution standpoint, one of the things that stuck out is that if, if this is heading down the pike, it's something that, that everybody needs to back to the sort of get your house in order, it's a good time to, 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 to do a check and see if, if in fact you, you, you have all the things in place that you mentioned. So I think that hits on almost everything that was was in your article and and that you and I had had, had, had yeah. talked about. I don't I don't think we have any other letters or numbers to cover. So, um, <laughs> yeah. but I I do want to you know thank you, Rebecca. Um, you know this has been great for 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 me as well as to just um, be able to to learn a little bit more about what's happening 2023 and really do look forward to following some of this into into 2024. So. Yeah want to just leave it, turn it over to you for any final comments, and then we, we can we can close out and, and end the series. Yeah, no, that sounds great. And thank you, Tina, for leading the discussion today. And it's really great um, to talk with you. So I think, you know, my concluding remark would just be there's, there's gives and gets in these developments, right? Um, gives in terms of new um, gives on the part of research institutions, that's the perspective I'm speaking from in terms of revised or new regulatory obligations, right? Those are gonna be um, burdens or just you know compliance considerations to contend with, but gets in terms of new funding opportunities, whether that's through ARPA-H or you know, what comes of the Moonshot Initiative. Mm -hmm. And so you know, um, both burden and opportunity and gives and gets, um, but we'll continue to watch. And so thanks again for for um, the opportunity to talk with you today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. 
To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.